We've either heard or have been part of the conversations about business continuity and operational resilience. Everyone wants to know, what's the difference? Well, I think today's guest has it figured out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 66, as the Resilience Think Tank presents the Resilient Journey podcast. I'm your host, Mark Hoffman, and today I'm joined by BCI Europe's Continuity and Resilience Consultant of the Year, David Farbrush. This is a full circle conversation. We start by talking about cyber attacks, but the focus is on the need to build cyber response into our business continuity strategies. Then we expand our conversations to talk about operational resilience, and David sheds light on intolerable harm, the end-to-end view, and the key dependencies we have in order to operate. It's a fascinating conversation. Hello, I'm Lisa Jones, one of the managing partners of the Resilience Think Tank. I want to take a minute before we get to today's guest to tell you about a special event called Pay It Forward Saturday. On Saturday, December 24th, we are encouraging followers of the Resilience Think Tank and listeners of the Resilient Journey to go out and do an intentional act of kindness for someone. It can be as simple as buying a cup of coffee for a person behind you in line, buying a stranger's breakfast, donating to a local food bank, or anything that will make someone smile during the stressful holiday season. Then I encourage you to drop us a line on LinkedIn, letting us know how you paid it forward. Don't forget, that's Pay It Forward Saturday, December 24th. Back to you, Mark. David, first, congratulations on winning the BCI Europe Continuity and Resilience Consultant Award. You're deserving of that. Uh, And I'm honored to have you here on the podcast. Tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. And then something new I've started is uh, Mm -hmm. tell us something that we might not otherwise know about you. Oh, okay. (laughs) I'll I'll give that a go, Mark. Yeah. (laughs) So, uh, David Fairbrush, uh, I'm a long-term cybersecurity professional moved now into resilience. So I've been involved in cybersecurity for about 30 years. Um, I'm currently the managing director of a small boutique consultancy called Beyond Blue. Um, I do a couple of things in parallel with that. I chair the National Cyber Resilience Board for Scotland, which is great fun working with the Scottish ministers. Um, I'm a military reservist. Yeah, so do, do all sorts of stuff. And I also support uh, KPMG as a global head of cyber futures. So that's my current mix of roles. If I look back over the career, um, I had some other interesting roles. I used to be the head of cyber and space for the Ministry of Defence, which was a, one of the best job titles around. So that that's was, right. <laughs> yeah, amazing job. Yeah. So and I, I can trace that right back to the early days when we used to look at uh, computer viruses, malware, early vulnerabilities in computer systems. So I've always been interested in this whole resilience against directed cyber attack. One of the things I like about doing this podcast is I get to talk to leaders uh, in the industry. And uh, there was definitely some some things in there I didn't know about you, particularly about your uh, leadership role uh, with the Scottish government. That's very interesting. I, I think you and I are alike in a way, and I'm giving myself some extra credit here. I don't think I'm at your level, certainly when it comes to the to the cyber part of things. I, I'll say that we're alike from the standpoint that we have this blended interest that spans not only cyber, but also ah. resilience. 
And I think that's kind of missing from our industry. Would you agree with that? I, I would, yeah. We're, we're, we're terrible about stovepipes, Mark, often. Mm. Um, so, I mean, you know, I deal with business continuity. I deal with disaster recovery. I deal with cybersecurity. I deal with privacy. And increasingly, actually, I've been sort of working a little bit with the World Economic Forum on digital trust as a sort of broader concept as well. And so we're absolutely terrible about all seeing the world from slightly different perspectives and lenses. And one of the fun ones I often look at, actually, is the organized crime lens. Mm. So I flick around and say, okay, well, if I'm sitting in the mindset, either a state or an organized crime group, what would they do? And they don't tend to care about the same stovepipes and boundaries that we do. Different ways of thinking about the world. All right, let's start with cyber, and then we're going to expand out from there because we are not going to limit this conversation to cyber-related things. But I know that recently your team at Beyond Blue held a really interesting webinar uh, called <laughs> The Threat of Ransomware. So spend a minute, talk a little bit about the webinar and what you discussed and the different things that you covered during that time. Yeah, of course, of course, Mark. So it was a mix. So the first one is the evolution of the threat of ransomware. And the challenges there is really moving to crime as a service as a model. So you're right, it's organized transnational criminality. It's driven by a very simple return and investment model for them. So they're really, really interested in new extortion techniques, new blackmail opportunities, how they monetize information they might collect during a system compromise. So we get a lot more double extortion now. It's that wonderful phrase. You know, we're going to blackmail you by encrypting your data. But by the way, we've also stolen a large amount of it to sell on in the marketplace or blackmail in terms of release. So we talked a bit about the threat piece. We then talked a bit about the reality of dealing with a major ransomware attack or incident. So effectively an existential crisis or threat to most organizations and what it felt like to wander in and find your IT estate has disappeared, all your servers are encrypted and denied, mm. an inability to even coordinate and communicate your crisis response actions and a lot of public scrutiny around that disruption, a lot of regulatory interest, and just dealing with that initial crisis period of 48 and 72 hours, where you're not certain quite what's happened, how long that attack has been in your system, what they've done to you, what they've taken, and you're really trying to start to rebuild your business bit by bit and work out what really, really matters in terms of priorities in that crisis period. And we talked a bit about that. And then we talked a bit about readiness you know so what you need to do in advance they might just help prepare you for the worst and you know a lot of that's just good practice on backup and restore but sometimes there's a lot in there about crisis management and building muscle memory mark and also thinking about how you'd coordinate that crisis with no it with no effective communication support as well and what you can do to prepare for that so a lot of this was just getting people into that preparedness mindset of just thinking through those crisis situations at scale with an enterprise disruption. And it felt very different to a sort of classic, you know, I've had a fire in one property. I know what's happened. I can see the flames. I know what's out. Um, we have to work with this and recover. I've got a business continuity plan. I'm good. This is an enterprise level crisis. It's enterprise level crisis, but it triggers business continuity 
It does. Very much so. And we're going to we're going to get into that. I want to jump back to something about your audience uh, first, though. Uh, I'm interested to know the types of roles of the people who showed up for the webinar. Uh, yeah. And this is where I think it's becoming more eclectic now, Mark, which uh-huh. is your point. So when you have a ransomware readiness discussion, like the one we, we just had, yes, of course, you're going to get cybersecurity people there the classic chief information security officer community. But increasingly, we're getting a, a mix of other people. So yeah, we get business continuity practitioners in there, but you're also getting a more executive interest in the topic because mm-hmm. we're seeing those scenarios beginning to play through in terms of public exposure, regulatory interest. So it's becoming much more of a an executive level discussion than a, a technical recovery discussion we might've had in the past. And that felt a bit different. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And and so we talked about the impact on business continuity. And mm-hmm. I know I do a lot of cyber response plans, not technical. They're crisis management plans. Mm-hmm. We focus on good decision-making, communications, insurance, legal privacy, all, all of those non-technical things. I treat that as a crisis management plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you used the term a minute ago, enterprise-wide crisis, which mm-hmm. it is. Yes. But when there is a cyber attack, whether it's a ransomware attack or whatever it is, Mm -hmm. it can most certainly lead to the equivalent of like a system down type of situation, which triggers business continuity. It does. When it comes to business continuity and cyber, why do you think cyber gets treated differently? It's, It's a good challenge. Sometimes I think it's a function of two things. Thing number one is uh, business continuity being done in a particular way, which falls short of what you just articulated. Hmm. You've articulated an enterprise-wide approach, a clarity around the overall business recovery and prioritization. A lot of clients I deal with, it doesn't feel like that sometimes. It feels like the business continuity plans are being generated by particular elements of the business, almost as a process issue sometimes. So you have that classic, you know, it sits in the folder on the shelf or in the grab bag. And what they've stopped short of is actually really saying in these worst case scenarios, genuinely, what is it I really, really need to focus on in terms of recovery? And increasingly, if I'm dealing with a financial services client, mitigation of customer harm. So not just recovering my bank, for instance, but actually, how do I make sure that I'm identifying vulnerable customers and working on treatment strategies for them? That feels a bit different. So the enterprise-wide piece, um, but it also brings it to life sometimes when people start to say, and the scale of my recovery task ahead is this. So I'm into rebuilding thousands Mm -hmm. of servers. I'm into getting new laptops or new Windows instances configured. And I'm doing all of this without my comfortable communications and collaboration structures I've come to depend on in my crisis response. That's different. And then the last piece that's different is you have an adversary. It's not a classic physical event that's occurred. You've got somebody who is trying to extort money from you, trying to blackmail you, possibly besmirch your reputation as well at the same time. Right. And you're still not even sure whether you've got them out of your network yet because you're still doing that initial containment phase where you say, I really, really don't know what's compromised, what's good, what's gone, what hasn't. And that uncertainty 
around events, Mark, is sometimes paralyzing for people. They would much rather know this has happened. I've been flooded. I've had a fire. You know, that sort of thing. It's much more comfortable. It, it, yeah, a situation like that, a fire or a flood or whatever, uh, obviously disruptive, obviously troubling, mm. but it's yes. not intentionally malicious uh, as an actor, as a bad actor would be. And, and that's very interesting. Um, you said something here, too. I want to go back to the enterprise approach to business continuity versus mm. what we see. And someone spoke to me mm. recently and suggested that they leave the development of their business continuity plans up to their department business continuity champions. Yes. And the mm. downside of that approach is you don't get that enterprise wide view. And maybe you don't get some of the thought leadership yes. that people like you and I might bring to say, hey, listen, you also mm. need to consider cyber and so forth. What are your thoughts on that? No, no, I think you're you're spot on. And there's always a risk, and it's something that often you see in regulated industries, particularly where things drift into compliance and process if you're not careful. Mm-hmm. So and it's a little bit like the journey on cyber, Mark, because originally we were on IT technical security. Then this thing called cyber came along and everybody went, oh, it's just IT security, re-rolled, isn't it? It's just a new word. It's a bit of a buzz phrase. But actually what it was getting into was a way of pulling that up to an executive level engagement and discussion. And also sometimes saying it can feel very different and it was going to make you uncomfortable. So some of these style of events are in that space where you genuinely need the executive to stop and go, if this did happen, what would it really mean for us? What do I really care about? What do I need to protect? And that's not just internally, but that customer perspective as well. Mm-hmm. And what sort of support am I going to have to mobilize quickly to get back in business when, frankly, I have no liquidity at the moment because all of my accounting systems are down? I might even have lost my customer databases and commercial contract structures too. I may not even know what my asset inventories are. So you're back into a very, very different style of, I have to rebuild my business now. And I may have the backup and recovery plans, but have I actually validated my ability to do that and restore those backups? And worse than that, how long is it going to take me to do that across my whole estate? Yeah, and that feels an executive level discussion, which pulls it out of the departmental business continuity planning piece, which is probably fit for purpose for technology outages, property events, right. maybe personnel issues, into a very, very different space. And, yeah, and there's some analogies with pandemics hiding in there, Mark, you know, about that large-scale business disruptive event, right. um, which really requires executive attention. This is really interesting because you are right to suggest that it's probably an underutilized uh, exercise to go through and validate that we can recover our data effectively. Uh, We make a lot of assumptions when we do backups, don't we? We do. Yeah. We we assume that we've backed up everything, that we've backed up everything that we'll need, that uh, we're backing it up frequently enough. And that the data is going to be there, not be corrupted, and be you know retrievable when we need it. Have you taken that a step further 
to mm-hmm. talk to your business partners about what they would do if that data was not available to be restored yes. and can it be manually regenerated? Yeah, and we've had that with a couple of clients who've been in exactly that position. So one one of the trends in ransomware um, was if I roll the clock back three years ago, um, the approach to data destruction from a criminal group was straightforward. It was, I'll come along and I'll encrypt all the data on your servers, and then I'm going to extort some cryptocurrency out of you, Bitcoins or equivalent. Yeah. Then they started moving about two years ago to the, uh, no, before I do that, I'm going to look and see whether you have any online backups mm. because I want the access credentials for those and I want to encrypt all of those at the same time that I'm encrypting your on-premise um, servers as well. So they moved the That's methodology right. and approach. So you're now in a recommendation, which is almost a three-level backup here. It's, uh, yeah, yeah, okay, so I'm going to have my main servers, yes. I'll back those up. Um, I may choose to have an online backup model, but I'm also going to take some offline archival copies too and have a discipline around what are the key data sets I really need to recover my business in that worst-case scenario. And that may be customer databases, it may be accounting databases, maybe be asset inventories, personnel databases. But this becomes the core, if you like, of my data set that I need. And that has to be untouchable, which means I'm into offline backup strategies or very, very carefully managed online backups with minimal risk of exposure. And that's a different mindset, Mark. And that get, you're right, that gets you into... What's the heart of my business again? Right. Not from a process sense, but from a, a data sense. And you know, I'm having some of those discussions with banks now where they're going, okay, um, worst case scenario, how do I get to the point where I have a core of the bank I can recover? And that may be, frankly, you know, I've got your account information, I've got your balances, I've got a means of verifying your identity. And that may be the core of my bank. And that's what I really, really need. Uh, the rest I'm going to have to regenerate. That's actually a really good segue point uh, to to talk about banks in the financial sector. And you used uh, a phrase earlier. You said uh, a few years ago the term mm-hmm. cyber came in, and people said, "Well, it's just uh, mm-hmm. a, just a new word, just another way of repurposing something we've already been done." And now we have another one of those new phrases new. in <laughs> operational resilience. And I know your team at Beyond Blue also work with a lot of clients uh, in this space, you know, particularly, again, in that financial sector. So I have a bunch of questions around OpRes that I want to ask you. At BCI World, just a, a few weeks ago, there was a panel discussion about what's the difference between <laughs> OpRes and business continuity. And there was a lot of banter back and forth. And I've never really heard a satisfactory answer to this. So what do you see the difference between those two things? Yeah, you're right. And it's very, very, very reminiscent of the IT security and cyber discussion we had a few minutes ago, isn't it? Right. Yeah. Okay. So the first thing is the word resilience is used in very, very, very many different ways. Um, so I'll, I'll take a narrow perspective and I'll look at the operational resilience regulations in the UK. Okay, which uh, I'm heavily involved in at the moment. Right. It was deliberately intended 
to be a challenge to the way that the banks and financial institutions think about continuity and service availability. So they deliberately chose the term to provide that challenge. The regulators and did. They did, yeah. Okay. And it's got a couple of areas where it's caused financial institutions to stop and think. And then I'll come back to your broader question on resilience. So number one, it said the focus is on customer harm, market, and broader economic stability. Okay. It's not about your organization at all, actually. Well, not directly. Indirectly, it is. So the, the FCA, our Financial Conduct Authority, came along and basically said, we got this idea of intolerable harm. It's the point in time where disruption to a service generates a harm to the customer or client base that's probably not reversible. It's you haven't got your pay come through, your house transaction has fallen through, or you can't buy food um, at the supermarkets because you can't access your funds, um, or you've breached a major legal contract as a result of that. So they're in that space where they're trying to get banks to think beyond just recovering their business into mitigating the harm they're causing to customers and clients and partners. And that gets them into a discussion about customer treatment strategies, for instance, in a way that they might not have done previously. So piece one is it moves the focus to outside the organization rather than inside. So that was the first element they tried to inject. The second element they injected was a move away from a classic risk model. So what they said is, and there is a lot of synergy here with business continuity and DR thinking. They said, um, in the past, you've dealt with operational risk. So you've done likelihood and impact. And you produce some wonderful heat maps that say, oh, this event is pretty unlikely, uh, but it's massive impact. But you know, we'll do the risk calculation. And nah, we're, we're fine with that. We're going to tolerate that as a risk. Right. So they then turned it much more into a safety mindset of saying, um, a number of your protective controls may well fail. Okay, um, Swiss cheese model, if you think about that from the safety community, you know, the holes align sometimes and things that really shouldn't happen do, sometimes with monotonous regularity as well. Across mm -hmm. That pushes you into response and recovery discussions. And they've deliberately wanted to focus on severe but plausible scenarios, which might have occurred somewhere in industry or they might be a near miss you can extrapolate against and then think about the recovery piece. So those were the two shifts in mindsets they were trying to generate by picking up this word resilience. But the other thing they desperately wanted to do was to pull it up a level so it became a board level responsibility, mm. formalized as such. So again, yes, all the banks had good disaster recovery. They had good business continuity planning, but sometimes that didn't think from the customer perspective and sometimes it didn't really, to your point, provide that enterprise view on some of those really challenging scenarios. So that's a very long description of, of the sort of culture change that we're trying to generate, Mark. Um, so is it different from business continuity? No, not, not directly, but that wasn't what they were intending to do. It, they were intending to force some changes in behavior and that executive and board level engagement formally. 
All right. So I want to ask you about your approach then. So let's just imagine a financial services firm um, that you go into and maybe they have traditional business continuity Mm -hmm. and they want to upgrade to be operationally resilient according to the regulate to the regulators. Yep. What's your approach going to be? What are you looking then to change? It's it's cultural, isn't it? Or talk about it. I don't want to cultural, but there's also some formalities around it as well. So and some of this may be easy for some organizations, but hard for others. So if you look at the regulations, so piece number one is very focused on definition of important business services, IBSs, okay, term in the regulations. An end-to-end view of a customer-facing service, which if disrupted, has the potential to cause harm. So it might be to the customer, or it could be if they're systemically important. It could be a broader market or financial impact on the industry, the economy. Okay, so mm-hmm. So the first piece is often defining those important business services. Now, sometimes people will have business processes already defined and documented. Often, they're not customer or client facing, and often they're not necessarily end-to-end as well. They're individual pieces of a customer journey or a customer interaction. So that IBS piece is the first bit. And with that comes an accountability it comes the who is in charge of the resilience of this important business service and a formal line of sight then to a defined role under the senior manager's regime called SMF 24, senior management function 24. So you have that accountability directly running through the organization. And then with that comes a whole series of discussions about how do you define that IBS? what underpins the IBS in terms of assets and systems and the metrics and reporting of resilience against that as well. So as soon as you define those IBSs, that whole discussion gets triggered. And sometimes we'll find some of that's known and well understood. Other parts, we just don't have the metrics or the visibility around. So there's a mapping piece hiding in there as well. And when I do this with banks, you often find some bits are well-known, some bits aren't. So I can come along and say, here's your important business service. Which physical locations support this? Tick, happy with that. Which key applications support it? Yeah, okay with that. Um, Which third parties? Well, may not have that well-defined, actually. And we may not have much assurance on the ability of third parties to deal with some challenging scenarios. But then there's data. Oh, right. What data flows along this Yes, And do we understand that? And as you do that mapping, Mark, what we're looking for is single point failures. And And now what we've done is we've we've now tied the whole conversation together, starting with cyber, understanding the importance of that data, and then as it flows into the IBS, and that single point of failure, that's fascinating. You got it. Yep. And then they do scenario testing. So they'll come along and say, here's your library of severe but plausible scenarios. We'll run these through. If this happened to you, convince us you can get back in operation within a thing called impact tolerance, which is the point you start to create intolerable harm to organizations, people, individuals outside your boundary. 
And that, that basically is the whole sort of operas, Greg. Now, is intolerable harm also a bit subjective, though? Of course, absolutely. And, <laughs> of course, and, because it wouldn't be our industry if it wasn't. Not. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's all about mindsets. I mean, but the thing is, it forces you to try and define it. So it forces you to say, um, who am I impacting if this service did fail? Who's vulnerable? When might they become vulnerable? And is there anything I can do to help them? And that might be things like emergency access to cash if you're in a bank, for instance. This is fascinating. This was a great conversation. Um, And uh, I want to thank you because when I looked at your background, my first view was, let's talk about cyber. And you're like, oh, yeah, we can talk about cyber. But... (laughs) there's some value in going beyond that. And I'm so glad you pointed that out. Thank you for, for doing that. Uh, again, Beyond Blue is uh, your organization there. And I know you do a lot of work in this area. People might um, want to reach out and learn more about how you could help them. What's the best way for folks to contact you? Probably a good old fashioned email still works for me, Mark. We, we've got an inquiries address. You can just send it to inquiries at beyondblue.tech. That'll work. Yeah, and so the and the website is uh, beyondblue.tech. Yeah, the joys of www.beyondblue.tech. All right, great. David, fascinating. Thank you so much. I appreciate you being here and being a guest on the podcast. Mark, it has been an absolute pleasure. So thank you very much for the time. I want to thank David Fairbrush for being my guest today and to talk to us about the importance of incorporating cyber into our continuity strategies and shedding some light on operational resilience. Huge thanks, as always, to the Resilience Think Tank for sponsoring the podcast. And I want to call your attention to next week's episode. Next week, I'm joined by probably the most resilient man I've ever met in my life. His name is Ricky Johnson, and he's got a fascinating story that you're going to want to hear, uh, particularly as we head into the holiday season. So join us, won't you, as we continue our resilient journey.